Hey, I'm Scott. Welcome back to the thing. I mean, from yesterday. I mean, yeah. Hey, it's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Yeah, the production values are pretty low here, but uh, I'm good on everything. So, it's a compromise, you know. Uh, today on the show, anti-war stuff. Um, I'm going to interview Marcy Wheeler about the FBI and your telephone. I'm going to interview Grant Smith about the Israelis in your government. And I'm going to interview Daniel Larison about the Republicans in your government. <sighs> Republicans. Uh, well, I've spent, um, I've done quite a few interviews on how horrible Hillary and Bernie are. And, um, which is a lot of fun. But I'm trying to be ecumenical here and make sure to attack everyone equally. As, uh, I'm absolutely equally opposed to everyone in the race. I mean, really, I guess I have to admit that Rubio and Cruz and Trump and Kasich and Hillary and Sanders are the worst. I know, it's, yeah, that's all of them. Wait, so Hillary is worse than Sanders, but Sanders is horrible. He's absolutely horrible on everything. Not just on economics, but you would think somebody as commie as him would be good on the empire. No, he's horrible on the empire. He's a senator. Bad on the Kosovo war, bad on uh, the, you know, Bill Clinton's Iraq uh, war one and a half. Voted for the Regime Change Act in 1998. Uh, supported the first AUMF, uh, you know, the terror war one, but not the Iraq one. And then he voted for all the appropriations for it, or many of them. Supports the Afghan war. Supports the drone wars, which means Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia. He was half-assed good on Libya. Didn't really oppose it. Did support a resolution calling for the UN to do something about it. Well, what does that mean? The UN Security Council to vote to have a war. So they voted for a no-fly zone, and Hillary and Obama took it as permission to wage a war. And what does Sanders do about it? Nothing. And he's bad on Syria right now. He even supports regime change and supporting the terrorists against Assad. He just doesn't want to do a Safe zone, no fly zone, because that would be a dangerous escalation. He just wants to send in the Saudi army to fight the Islamic State. What? What Saudi army, and why would they fight the Islamic State? He never explains. Horrible on everything. Of course, the only reason he's better than Hillary is because she's Dick Cheney. She's the worst person alive. Well, other than probably Dick Cheney and his daughter Liz. She's the worst person on the face of the earth. So, yeah, Sanders is on the theory of relativity and all of that. Gravitational waves and what have you. Okay, he's slightly less worse than her. But certainly a million miles from supportable. And then on the right... You know, uh, I appreciate that Trump says he doesn't want to fight with Russia. Does he say anything else good at all? Can't think of anything else good, he says. But God, he's horrible on everything. Well, he doesn't want to overthrow Assad. Um, 
doesn't want regime change there, but he's for really reinvading Iraq War Three. said he wants to go to the Pentagon, find the meanest Patton-like general to put together an army, go in there and invade, knock the hell out of ISIS, and occupy the oil fields forever. And he wants to reinstitute torture. And not only does he want to reinstitute torture, but uh, in his stump speeches, he's now, you know, ridiculing waterboarding as pathetic and weak Bush-style torture. Nothing compared to what's going to happen to these people, whoever, once he's in charge. Really, and he keeps saying it. Last night they're chanting, yeah, USA. Right? Because drowning someone to the very brink of death over and over and over again. Eh, that's hardly torture at all. I mean, yeah, maybe it was good enough for the Spanish Inquisition and Pol Pot and Hitler. But you know what? I think we could do better. The Imperial Japanese like to do waterboarding, huh? Well, they were a bunch of barbarians. We're going to show them how to do barbarism. Says Donald Trump. And then, of course, Ted Cruz. Again, doesn't want to overthrow Assad, but so what? Bad on every other issue ever thought of in the world. So, slightly less worse than Rubio on Syria. But other than that, it's nothing but Rand Paul without the perm. And then Rubio is just nothing but Bill Crystal. Rubio is just Israel's robot running for president. He's hardly a human at all. Talking point recitation machine. That's all he is. Tell me what I'm supposed to say, guys. I wonder if he even bothers trying to understand any of it. That would just get in the way of the memorization. Sitting at home, you know, sitting in his hotel room uh, practicing on flashcards right now. Yeah, so, but anyway... Uh, hate them all. Just trying to prove to you, I'm very nonpartisan in all my hatred here. Hated Bush, hated Rand, hated all the other Republicans who are now gone. Hate all the ones who are left. Oh, they're all just terrible. And I understand people's need to want, well, I don't know, need. I understand why people want to believe. Why they want to pick the guy who's the least worst out of the group. That they, as far as they can tell, and support him to keep the other ones at bay. Hell, even Lysander Spooner said, it makes sense to vote in self-defense, you know, if you have to. That's not aggression, but uh, I couldn't, I just, you know. Again, the biggest difference between any of these would be between Sanders and Clinton, and that's still only a tenth of a percent. And he's so horrible on every single thing in the world. I mean, I guess maybe the silver lining would be he would bankrupt the U.S. Treasury so fast that the empire would collapse sooner rather than later. But that's not really, you know, a strategy I favor. Otherwise, I'd just be a warmonger, right? That'd be easy. I'd be a millionaire supporting war all day. The sooner the empire kills itself, the better for all of mankind. But, you know... I sort of prefer the Ron Paul approach where we try to preach reason. <laughs> hey, guys, it doesn't have to be this way. We could just stop. We could abandon the empire and be all right. Well, anyway, 
you and I, we can all see, you know, what good that does. I don't know. I can't help but daydreaming about the, you know, could have been or could be. You know, what if Ron had been elected in 08? Or, uh, or better, what if he was 20 years younger and could run right now? What if Ron Paul was in there on the Republican side versus Donald Trump? Man, that could be great. I mean, not that the American people would ever, you know, buy into this whole uh, all you need is freedom thing. They hate that, but we can get a few million more on our side, you know? I'll uh, move the needle on the dial just a little bit further toward freedom. But it really is a, a great contrast, isn't it? I mean, uh, the one thing that Trump and Ron have in common is coming from the outside of the establishment, railing against, I mean, not that Ron really, you know, he's too much of a gentleman to really pick fights with people or whatever, but, you know, from his positions, he was railing against the Republican establishment the way that Trump at least pretends to. But you see how much more purchase Trump's message of authoritarianism has than Ron's message of peace and freedom among the same crowd. But what might you do with yours if you're free? I'm scared, they say. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. All right, kids, welcome back. Again, our good friend Marcy Wheeler, our good friend Grant Smith, and our good friend Daniel Arison. All coming up on the show. You could say, Scott Horton, why don't you find some new people to interview? And I would say, better than Marcy Grant and Daniel? I, yeah, no, I don't think so. And besides, I already know their email addresses, so. Um, the brilliant Marcy Wheeler coming up to explain uh, Apple, FBI, et cetera, et cetera, to us here in just a minute. I uh, don't know if I'll have time to talk about this with her, and I don't think she's written about it as far as I know. So uh, let me just go ahead and mention myself here, Obama's new um, Guantanamo announcement this morning. It was maybe, uh, could be that what he announced is worse than nothing. Okay, it's just like we talked about in that op-ed yesterday, the recommendation. More detainees, He's gonna the ones who have already been cleared, he's going to go ahead and ship them out of there. Uh, and then he wants to speed up the review process for the ones who are uh, who have been determined so far to be not eligible for transfer, too dangerous to release, and yet 
without any evidence against them that could be used to try them, even in one of these kangaroo military commissions. So they're going to re-review those and see if they can clear any more of those and see which of them, uh, see basically which ones they can release and which ones they can try to put on trial for something. But still leaving open the possibility that, that some of these people are going to be held without charges indefinitely. And he wants to close down the prison and bring them to the United States. Now, he didn't, uh, as far as the military trials, I mean, they already backed down on trying them in New York. That's not going to happen. They are going to get military commission trials, and I guess still down there at Guantanamo. It's just the prison for everybody else that they're going to close. I don't know if they're ever going to hold those trials down there. It's The whole thing is a complete disaster as far as trying to make up that process on an ad hoc basis. Um, and then with all the obstruction of justice and CIA interference and God knows what going on down there with those uh, so-called trials. Uh, but then, so here's the real rub. Here's why this could be worse than not closing it at all. You bring in prisoners, captives, who are being held without charges indefinitely to the United States, you are then importing the Guantanamo quote-unquote rule of law, the Guantanamo system, to the U.S. Now, maybe the courts will say, no way, you can't do that. But kind of not really, right? Because the courts have already ruled that just because you put it in Cuba doesn't mean you're immune from the law. The law does still apply, and they do get writs of habeas corpus, and they do get uh, to have their custody reviewed in federal court. But the the Supreme Court certainly has not ruled that they get trials or that they should all just be subject to the rule of law in the United States, just as any other accused criminal would be. And so, in other words, Obama's plan here is to bring captives to the United States to be held forever without charges. Guantanamo rules on American soil, which could set a hell of a precedent. Now, remember, they already did this before. Remember what uh, Bush Jr. did to Almari, was accused of being an al-Qaeda guy who was arrested literally in Peoria, Illinois, which is the cliche, right? How's this going to play in Peoria, Middletown, America? Um, and uh, he was arrested there, and then he was held without charges by the military for, what, four years or something? by George W. Bush before he was finally prosecuted. And then I think they let him just plead out and let him go, right? I forget now. Anyway. Um, yeah, so there you go. More Obama Warren against the rule of law in America. And I'm, I'm going to have a note here in case I have time to ask Marcy what she thinks of all this, whether I got that right. But I'm pretty sure, yeah. I'm afraid so. All right, now... Um, Um, yeah, man, so, where, um, uh, Taliban motorcycle bomber kills 14 north of Kabul. At least 14 people, including six Afghan police and eight civilians were killed yesterday when Taliban motorcycle bomber attacked a group of police near a medical clinic north of Kabul. More and more attacks in Kabul. They say there was a new report, um, a military report that came out 
that had it that uh, the Taliban controlled 20% of the country in the daytime and 60 at night. More territory than they have controlled in the country since any time since 2001. And, man, where was I? I was just reading this. I think it was a thing in the national interest. It said that there was a Pentagon study. Why did I not know this? Did Gareth ever mention this to us guys? That there was a Pentagon study that said if you really want to win the war against the Taliban, you're going to need 500,000 troops. Otherwise, you know, we can do a PR stunt and extend the war for another little while for political reasons. You want to do that? Oh, okay, good. That's what they call the Afghan surge. Put more time on the Washington clock, as David Petraeus puts it. Let us stay and lose longer in slower motion. That's all. So now they're down to 10,000 troops. And seems to me like a very real risk of a fall of Saigon type moment. You know? Smuggle enough men and weapons into Kabul to do one big uprising on one day. Some rifles here and some RPGs there. And then what are the drones going to do about it? They're all, you know, completely infiltrated into Kabul. Seems doable. Seems like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, our last 10,000 guys can all stand in a circle firing out somewhere. But as for everybody else, what about them? So, man, we'll see what happens there. Whole war going to hell. Uh, and then Yemen. This is Jason Ditz at news.antiwar.com from yesterday. Al-Qaeda fights alongside Saudi coalition in Yemen's Taze. And uh, this is a BBC report, and it isn't the kind of de facto like we've talked about. Well, gee, they're on the same side. No, this is, yeah, they're fighting side by side. While most of the Saudi war in Yemen has seen them ignoring Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula as the Islamists seize cities somewhat off the beaten path, today filmmakers caught the two sides fighting side by side against the Shiite Houthis in the city of Taiz. Taiz, Taiz, I don't know, T-A-I-Z. Saudi officials denied any formal coalition cooperation with AQAP, but UAE troops were seen on film directly supporting both Sunni militia fighters and AQAP forces in combat along the front lines, suggesting a fledgling alliance, at least in this region. Taiz has been the main, and again, it's been a de facto one for a year now. Taze has been the main focus of the Saudi-led war for months, but seemingly been stalemated throughout. Desperation to accomplish something on the ground may have played a role in the sudden arrival of AQAP forces to join the battle. It's treason. Sorry, but yeah, that's what it is. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday. And The Future of Freedom with FFF Founder and President Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there. ScottHorton.Liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me.
Hey, Al Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. LibertyRadioNetwork.com. ScottHorton.org. All right. Uh, first up today, it's our friend Marcy Wheeler from EmptyWheel.net. That's her great blog, EmptyWheel.net. How you doing, Marcy? Welcome back. Hey, how are you? I'm doing real good. Uh, very happy to talk with you again. And uh, very happy to learn all kinds of stuff when I read you, as always. Uh, Apple, FBI, what are they fighting about? Oh, whether the FBI can force Apple to uh, rewrite its software, rewrite its operating system. Hmm. Well, so, but uh, the other side of the story is that, yeah, but no, nah, it's really just a warrant to search the guy's phone. And why won't they help, Marcy? Oh, golly, why won't they help? One thing that, you know, we should start with is that the FBI already knows who committed this attack and already knows that uh, Farouk and his wife were not directed by anyone overseas. So, I mean, that often gets forgotten in this debate. There is zero question about who committed the attack. So it's it's not clear... San Bernardino we're talking about here. Right, right. So it's not clear why it is that the FBI is making this their big issue, but, you know, the FBI, it, besides the fact that it's terrorism, terror, 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 and therefore people start acting like idiots, and therefore a request that might uh, get more critical thinking, as the request they made in October, uh, which was just for a drug case, um, turns out right after they made the request, the guy pled guilty, so it's clear they didn't need the evidence in his phone to get him um, to plead guilty, but, uh, you know, people are going to rush to expand authorities as soon as you issue, as soon as you utter the word terrorism in a way that they're not going to do when you say drug war. Mm. And that's a, that's a big part of what's going on. So, um, so yeah, the FBI, this is a phone that is encrypted and the FBI says, we don't want you to unlock his phone. What we want you to do is, is, uh, disable two security features. One is, um, which, pre- which prevents you from trying to brute force a password attempt more than 10 times. Um, and the other one is a delaying function that Apple put in there. And they say, well, just, you know, um, shut these down. We'll even let you keep the phone and we'll just send you the, the, the brute force attempts. And so that won't, that won't make anyone else less safe. And the reason it will make people less safe is, um, as I had originally said, this is not about, I mean, Jim Comey just testified on February 9th, and he said one of the reasons that the FBI wants back doors is so they can solve car accidents. I mean, th- that is so far from scary terrorism case that uh, it's e- even obscene that we're discussing making all of us less safe uh, in the interest of solving car accidents. But we also learned today that uh, since basically September of last year, FBI has asked for this All Writs Act, which is basically, here's a warrant, but we can't uh, serve it by ourselves, so make the company help us. Um, it's a 1789 law. It probably is invalidated by Calais in, in the case of Apple. 
which is where part of this discussion will go. We can return to that. But um, So there are 17 devices across 15 requests that the FBI has asked to open. So mm-hmm. it's not just it's not just Farouk's phone. It's not just uh, the, the meth dealer in October's phone. It's more people's phone. And it's going to, you know, it's going to be an order of magnitude more as soon as as soon as Apple has to start rewriting its operating system. Mm-hmm. And so, in other words, this really is not about San Bernardino at all. This is a, a war by the FBI against basically, you know, the courts, I guess, to get this permission to expand, to, to set the precedent, to expand their authority in a way that I guess so far they've been unable to get Congress to grant them. Well, here's the ridiculous thing is um, on October 9th or thereabouts, Jim Comey went before Congress and he said, no, the the administration is not asking for legislation at this time. That very same day is when FBI asked for the All Writs Act in Brooklyn. And it just so happened that they pulled a magistrate judge who cares about the Constitution. His name is James Orenstein. He should be everyone's hero. Um, And Orenstein was like, wait a second. Uh, When Congress passed CALEA, which is the law that requires telephone companies to make it possible to wiretap ongoing conversations. When Congress passed Kalea, they specifically thought about whether it was going to include telephone manufacturers and did not. Uh, Apple is a telephone manufacturer. And they specifically weighed whether or not they were going to make encryption permissible. They did. So in other words, under the terms of Kalea, Congress has already ruled and said what Apple is doing is perfectly legal. And what the FBI, so literally what the FBI did last October was sit there before Congress and with a straight face said, we don't want any more legislation. And then in what they thought would be a secret request, the, the judge on his own accord said, oh, hey, let's make this public. But what they thought was going to be a secret request said, yeah, sure, we just told Congress today that we're not looking for legislation. But here, can you give, can you make Apple do something that the law doesn't require them to do anyway in secret? Um, and that judge, Orenstein, made it public, and that's when we first got to know about this. The FBI in, in the um, San Bernardino case chose to make it public because, you know, they're trying to, um, again, scream terror, 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 so that we all stop thinking. Um, but uh, but but the, the, de- the debate should be twofold. One is, is this even legal given Kalea? Is the request even legal? And I'm not a lawyer, but uh, Apple has hired Ted Olson, and I suspect he's going to make a pretty compelling argument that it's not. But the other thing is, why, if Congress has already legislated on this issue, why is the FBI sneaking around um, and trying to basically pass new law in secret in, in a bunch of magistrates' courts around the country? And, and that is really an abuse of power. And, and that's how people, you know, it's bad enough that they want... Uh, back doors into into iPhones so that they can solve car accidents. But it's also that they're trying to bypass uh, they're trying to bypass the government as it has been set up, and and that should offend everybody. Whether or not you think Apple should have to unlock this phone, how FBI is going about doing it is should concern people. Right. All right. Now, so. Uh, help me out with a couple of metaphors and analogies and things like this, because, uh, you know, for the people who their brains did shut off when they heard the word terrorism, after all, deadly attack, mass murder attack here. We want to know everything we can. The FBI is asking Apple to please give us more information. Right. And I saw um, uh, Cade Crockford from the ACLU say this is like uh, forcing a locksmith 
to forge a new kind of skeleton key. So I'm not asking him to help us break into this house in order to serve a search warrant on the house. But this is a, a like a warrant on the locksmith basically conscripting him into the service of the police in a way that we traditionally just have not allowed that in this country. Does that sound about like a fair comparison to you? Well, it's FBI is they're not stupid. I'll, I'll credit them with that. I mean, you know, they're trying to and Jim Comey is one of the world's but, you know, it, it sort of scares me, Scott, that like he is better at PR than J. Edgar Hoover was because, you know, oh, he's such a nice guy and once ran up once ran up hospital steps. Um, right. It, it this is not. I mean, first of all, many technical experts have said that a quote-unquote locksmith would be able to break in this phone. So Apple wouldn't have to be involved. That is how law enforcement got into Apple phones generally in the past. Um, good forensic guys, and, and I mean, here's the other thing about this San Bernardino request, is um, the FBI picked up the phone on December 3rd. They um, went to the county, because it technically is owned by the county, which was um, Farouk's employer, and said, hey, by the way, will you change his Apple password? Now, had they not done that, they could have just taken the phone and brought it by the county Wi-Fi, which uh, it promptly would have recognized, and the phone would have updated um, the iCloud account. Mm-hmm. So in other words, a lot of the content they're looking for, if they had just not been stupid, they would have gotten it um, for free, basically, anyway. But they were stupid, and so now they that now they need Apple's help, but they probably could get a good forensics person to do it anyway. They just want to force Apple to do this. Right. Man, all right, this is really something. Everybody hang tight. We'll have more with the great Marcy Wheeler, emptywheel.net, right after this. Hey, you own a business? Maybe we should consider advertising on the show. See if we can make a little bit of money. My email address is scott at scotthorton.org. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. If this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. All right, Shell, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. I'm talking with Marcy Wheeler about the fight between Apple and the FBI over their uh, attempt to uh, force Apple to break into this guy's phone. Create a whole new operating system to defeat his security flaws. As Marcy was saying before the break, they're the ones who screwed up. They could have uh, had his phone update to the cloud and got pretty much everything they needed off of it anyway. And as she said, they could probably break into the phone anyway. It's all about uh, setting the precedent that they can force Apple or anyone else to do anything. And um, so that's kind of where I want to go with this now, Marcy, is about the long-term consequences of this. And you got an interesting block quote from Amy Davidson over at The New Yorker on uh, your blog there. Where you cite, where, where she talks about some of the uh, future, you know, uses beyond how this could be interpreted, um, you know, going forward, especially as new technologies come out, that kind of thing. And then you bring up some examples in the past where they've already been getting away with this when it comes to bullying Muslims, uh, who don't have lawyers like Apple has lawyers. So, well, do some also, of that extrapolating for us. So. Remember, so that email provider that, uh, Snowden is believed to have used right. was, 
was forced to turn over the keys for every one of his users, and he basically shut down because he couldn't he couldn't provide them with what he had sold them, which was an actual um, somewhat secure email system. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, it, you know, it's a really really interesting question because I think I think there's very good reason to believe that. DOJ has gone to Congress and said, we're going to ask the FISA court this year to approve decryption as part of this year's 702 certificate. So every year, under what people think of as PRISM, every year uh, the government has to go to the FISA court and um, basically say, here's what we plan to do. Here are the certificates. Here's how we plan to go after counterterrorism in the upcoming year. And here, uh, here's the specific, here's how we pick targets, and here's what we're going to ask for from providers. And there's always some assistance from providers included in that. And there's really, there's no limits on the assistance provide from providers. And I would be, frankly, shocked if they hadn't tried to require this assistance from providers in the past or, uh, you know, or at the very least are trying to expand the certificates uh, for this year. And, you know, that would mean what we're seeing with this Apple stuff is the means to force Apple to, to basically rewrite their operating system such that all you need to do is change the metadata in the operating system to make it applicable for somebody else. And what it would do is flash out updates secretly to your phone. I mean, so, you know, if you've got your Apple phone set to automatic updates, then you flash it out and all of a sudden, you know, the NSA can get inside your phone. And that's sort of where I imagine they're going, but of course we're never going to find that out. Yeah. And then... But so far beyond phones, they can apply this in what kind of other areas of life, maybe? It seemed like Amy Davidson was talking about they could get people to uh, write genetic code they, the way they want. I'm not exactly sure what she meant by that. but, but. Well, I, I mean, look, I mean, the argument that Apple is making and other people are making is your smartphone is pretty close to being your brain, right? I mean, I guess we're all – it's our, now our crutch. Our brain doesn't work anymore. But we keep things – that we used to only keep in our brain in our phone um, or that we used to, you know, used to be passing things like messages or, 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 I mean, one of the things the FBI claims they're after in this phone is communications between Farouk and his wife. Well, you know, if this were a court case, those would be privileged in any case. But, um, but the notion that we communicate online so much more means that communications between spouses end up being in somebody's, you know, pocket brick rather than in somebody's brain. Mm-hmm. And um, and there needs to be some some level. I mean, the FBI would argue that, no, once you put anything into digital form, then it, then it is entitled to it with a warrant. Um, but, the, you know, the degree to which we are relying on these things, there needs to be some point at which they say, this is now your private space, and it will take an exceptional request to get inside your private space. Um, but obviously the FBI doesn't want that because they want cases to be easy. And in this case, I'm going to remind again, they've already solved it. They know who caused this. They knew who killed these people. You know, right. they, this is not about solving a case. This is about the principle for them. Mm-hmm. Boy, well, and it's everything we can do just to hold the line, never mind, you know, winning major victories to roll back 
the onslaught of, you know, because if it's not this, it'll be, as you already pointed out, they've already come up with, was it 17 or 18 different excuses to to do this same kind of thing in the past? I mean, they're just going to keep going. Right. And 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 that's the thing is, it is you know, there will like, could somebody get inside your Google Glass? Could somebody get inside your um, if you've got. You know, we're close to the point where we're inserting chips into people's brains, uh, for disabilities. Could somebody access those? Could, you know what? It, it's, it's, we're getting close to that point in any case where the FBI is literally asking companies to hack the brain. And, and that's the thing is that this code doesn't exist. So, um, you know, that the engineers at Apple specifically designed this this release not to have this code exist and now the government is saying and there are by the way um the other legal aspect of this which will be interesting is code is speech and so uh basically the fbi is is coercing speech out of apple's programmers mm-hmm. um and and that obviously should frighten people as well yeah i i read an interesting take uh like that uh, that the First Amendment, there are examples where the courts have decided the First Amendment prevents you from being forced to say something in different circumstances and how this would count. I think it was a Cato guy that wrote it. Uh, right. Yeah, very right. interesting there. Okay, so now tell me why torturer, spy, lawbreaker Michael Hayden is uh, taking our side in this? Or do do I misunderstand that? No, he has for a while. Um my guess is somebody's paying him to take our side. Remember, he's a, he's a big contractor now, and so he tends to say what his clients want him to say. The first, the first big national security guy who came out in support of encryption was um, Michael Chertoff, and he's kind of like the uber national security contractor guy. So, I, you know, I assume somebody is paying him to say this, and I'll take it, right? It, yeah. That's, uh, if money is speech and somebody's paying, uh, somebody of Hayden's stature to say it, I'll take it. But I, but I also think that, um, I mean, here's, here's the analogy I keep coming up with and actually came up, uh, used recently with somebody from the FBI is, um, 18 months ago, the biggest threat to America, to America, this is crazy, was that the North Koreans had hacked Sony, Sony Pictures, which was a serially insecure company. They, they kept getting hacked. Their PlayStations, their company, their, um, financial records, everything. Hack, 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 hack. So finally, um, a really major hack comes along. North Korea allegedly comes in and steals all their stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, Sony is, is, is called a critical infrastructure company. And we have to start engaging in foreign policy to prevent hacks like that from happening after you know after it became really clear it was already clear that sony was completely inept for its own cybersecurity, and um and and then this year after the paris attacks people were like well we think terrorists are using sony playstations to communicate with each other and 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 they're encrypted in truth they're not really encrypted they're kind of gently slightly locked up they're just not very easy to collect metadata from but you know, in in the course of a year, people went from saying, "Oh my God," you know, uh, Sony is 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 a critical infrastructure. If if North Korea can hack Sony, then we're all going to die. To the next year, saying, "Oh my God, we have to have no protection on Sony's products. Right. We have to let them be hacked at will." And that should make people think about the need for there being a balance. And it's not a balance between privacy. And security, it's a balance between security and security. You know, in other words, if Sony is not permitted 
to prevent its users from being hacked because the FBI wants to sneak in and see terrorists possibly discussing an attack, then what we've decided is terrorists are a bigger threat than hackers. Um, even though in the global threat hearing just a couple weeks ago, on the 9th, in fact, um, they all seem to say that, that cybersecurity is still the bigger threat. And so, you know, the smartest thing to do from a cybersecurity perspective is let Apple keep its secure phones. Um, you know, the terrorist people, that, that makes them cranky. But the smartest thing, and if, if the hackers are the biggest threat, then they should let Apple keep its secure phone and not, not, and, and find some other way to solve these crimes that already were solved. Right. Yeah. Again, back to that all important point. In this case, uh, no question at all. Now we can imagine plenty of hypotheticals where they really wish they knew what some people were saying to each other. But like you said, hey, it's, there's a world of possibilities out there. Guys, obey the law and do your job. That's it. The, the Bill of Rights is the law. Um, all right, y'all, that is the heroic Marcy Wheeler. You see why I have her on all the time to explain these wonderful, terrible things to us. Uh, EmptyWheel.net. Thanks, Marcy. All right, take care. You hate government, one of them libertarian types, or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Um, yeah, man, I'm on uh, the Liberty Radio Network here noon to 2 Eastern time on the weekdays. Archives at scotthorton.org, etc. like that. Next up on the show today is our friend Grant F. Smith. He is the founder and director of the Institute for Research, Middle East Policy, Middle Eastern Policy, IRMEP, I-R-M-E-P, IRMEP.org. And uh, you know what you should do is search Google, uh, go site colon IRMEP.org, and then just search for .pdf and see what you find. <laughs> I bet you'll have a lot of fun. Um Grant, what he does is he's like the Jason Leopold of the Israel lobby. That's all he does is uh, is uh, FOIA documents uh, and do journalism about the Israel lobby and their criminal uh, role in American politics. Welcome back to the show, Grant. How are you doing? Very well, Scott. Thank you very much for having me on again. Uh, good, good. Very happy to have you here. Uh, interesting new piece here. Americans holding favorable views of Israel decline by 16%. Over what period of time, sir, and according to who? Okay, according to uh, a survey that we did on February 20, 19 to 20, using Google Consumer Surveys of 1,029 people for three questions on three countries. But then we compared that data to Gallup data 
because I didn't do one last year. Um, and then publish the results. So it's, uh, it's an interesting little look. Uh, just as a side note, Gallup did release data from their survey, uh, on the same day, but they didn't, uh, release anything on the decline in favorable views <laughs> of Israel, and they didn't release anything on favorable views of Palestinian authority. Uh, they did release their data on Iran, which is pretty close to ours. It's about 1.6, uh, percentage points off. Uh, but still well within their margin of error, which is huge, about 4%, whereas uh, on these polls it was 2.3% at the maximum. Anyway, um, the story here, which I think the important thing here, is that if you uh, were responding about Iran, your average American, you either liked it much more or hated it much more. So the categories... Um, you know, the basically, Iran nuclear deal? yeah, mm-hmm. basically moved into, oh, this is great, or mm, I still hate it. I hate it more. Um, in terms of the Palestinian Authority, you hated it a little bit more, but others liked it a lot more. And in terms of Israel, the most interesting results, uh, very and mostly unfavorable one out, uh, at the expense of very, excuse me, uh, very favorable. So you have this big shift of uh, Americans responding uh, favorably uh, into very unfavorable. So we pinned that in the analysis. It's at antiwar.com on all of the shenanigans where you had this constant uh, Israeli government intervention in U.S. politics to try and get uh, Congress to pat- not, well, obviously oppose the deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, well now, so, uh, back to the Iran thing in a second, but as far as the Palestinian Authority. Right. You know, I can't think of anything that's really happened that made them look very good or anything like that. And yeah. what is very good to say about them, unless. I agree. It's just sort of a reflection on, you know, if, if I have to choose sides between these two, I pick the Palestinian side. Is that basically it? Well, I think it's basically people are conflating Palestinian Authority with Palestine in general, and they heard about maybe uh, the fact that they've got a flag in front of the UN, the fact that they're trying to do things nonviolently to oppose the occupation. Uh, not a lot of bad news, really, except for recently. Um, so what you have there is an awful lot of people, both in Gallup's poll and in our poll, 11% in their poll, uh, 12.9 in ours, really don't have any opinion and say things like, I don't know much about this. So yeah. that's the largest category of these three questions we asked of people saying that. But in general, what you had uh, in terms of a shift was from mostly unfavorable to a lot more people saying they viewed it favorably. But I would agree with you that not too many people track, understand, receive news about the Palestinian Authority. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, if if raising the flag is, is Abbas's big political stunt of the year or whatever, I shrug. I mean, who yeah, even right. noticed, right? Nobody, sure. you know, yeah. in this country. Not, in this country. Not, not huge yeah. moves. Not huge moves. Yeah. Okay, so now, um, I wonder this. Have you ever polled or do you know of research about to what extent do Americans even understand that there is an occupation by the Israeli military and police forces on the West Bank and, and that, you know, where... 
millions no, of Palestinians that's, live. That's the kind of question that should be polled. There's a there's a large pool of questions that are never asked, and we've asked some of them, like, do you think Israel has nuclear weapons? Uh, no one ever asked that. Most people think they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we asked a couple of years ago, do you think Iran has nuclear weapons? Uh-oh, like 58% of Americans also thought that they did, which yeah. was wrong. So I, I would agree that that question should be asked. I'd love to ask that question. Uh, but this is still expensive. I mean, the only reason we're allow- able to do this is that Google Consumer Surveys are accurate and they're cheap and they're fast. And so you can do a survey if you have a good question and uh, either compare it to someone else's survey data if you ask the same question or do something new. And I would agree that is a new question that should be asked because it never is. I've never seen that question asked. Now, my impression is that people just they can't really understand it or they kind of have contradictory information about it, don't really, or maybe just not enough at all. But I believe, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm I'm pretty sure that when Americans have it explained to them about the results of the 67 war and the occupation ever since then, you know, taking Israel itself, after, you know, from 48 on as a fait accompli, Nakba or otherwise, but when they understand about the occupation ever since 67, I think people, you know, Americans like to choose the side of the underdog in that. They're obviously being treated very unfairly. If it was any country, any other country in the world that was doing it to them, we'd be on their side, you know? Yeah, well, I I would think that the fact that people have so much more access to different views and alternative and new media, that that may have an impact. But I've heard you say it on your show many times. You know, wow, I wonder if uh, most Americans think Israel occupies Palestine or Palestine occupies Israel. It, I mean, it's a question that's worth asking. Just It's kind of like the Iran nuclear weapon question. People were so pounded into their heads that this is a, a major threat, and they still think so, that it's worth asking just to see how misled people are. Right. It doesn't really help, though. Right. Well, then again, if you can get it reported... And make it a news story that this is a question that we just don't ever hear asked. This is a map we just don't ever see on TV. You know, these kinds of things. Yeah, there's a lot of, well, this is worth saying because polls can be very political. As as I just noticed, Gallup uh, fielded their questions. They could have put out information about Israel and Palestine and Iran. And they censored themselves. And they didn't do it. They they put out their major headline. Go to Gallup.com. You'll see America's enemies list. And it's talking about China, Russia, Iran, North Korea as being the top enemies. This is from the survey, the same survey set that they do. They could have uh, fed uh, the thing that we did, but they didn't release it. So all Gallup has done with their data so far is bash America's greatest enemies, uh, you know, they show an uptick on Iran favorability, but they're holding back the Israel and Palestinian data. And kind of one of the dirty little secrets, you've asked if I've done surveys before. The answer is yes. I used to work at a company that did a lot of surveys. It was owned by Reuters. And what would tend to happen, and I hate to say this dirty little secret to any, you know, ears that might be burned by, but omnibus customers who have subscriptions sometimes cancel those subscriptions if bad news comes out. So there's a profit motive, there's a pecuniary motive to when and how you release data. So, you know, sorry about that. Oh, well, yeah. (laughs) And of course, (laughs) as we all know, the sample size and the way the question is phrased and asked and everything can mean all of the world, you know, when it comes to the results that you get as well. Absolutely. Um, well, it's changing the definition of opinion to being something that you answer yes or no to rather than a thing you explain. 
Anyway, yeah, but we'll I would... be right back with Grant Smith in just one sec. Sorry, man. Hold it right there. All right. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. I'm talking with Grant F. Smith, Israel Lobby Slayer, author of Divert, the book on how the Israelis stole a bunch of weapons-grade uranium from the United States of America for their illicit nuclear weapons program. And anyway, um, at the break, I'm sorry, I had to interrupt you there. You were going to say a thing when we were talking about the polls and how they're done here. Right. Well, just just the final fact that, you know, sometimes there are customers behind these polling series that have a lot of influence, direct or indirect, on, on when and how they're released. And the fact, again, that Gallup has not released this data, and sometimes they wait a long time and then, you know, release it and show a positive uptick. I, I just find that to be uh, a little bit uh, worrying, but it's good that you can kind of preempt and, and do it without their consent. So... Uh, but just overall, I don't think I, I mentioned properly that we're talking about very low levels of favorability for Iran and the Palestinian Authority. Uh, you know, yeah, it's a 42% uptick, but they're from very low numbers, you know, in the teens to the higher teens and low 20s. Right. Whereas Israel's decline uh, seems small, you know, 16% decline, but that's going from 70% favorability to the 59% level with most of that shifting into very unfavorable. So I think... You know, we may not see that data from Gallup, but, uh, you know, comparing the Iran numbers and the fact that the questions are exactly the same, I suspect if they ever do release it, uh, it'll be almost exact. Yeah. Well, now, so this is a really important phenomenon here going on where it used to be before Walt and Mearsheimer wrote the Israel lobby that, yeah, you can read Justin Romando talk like this at antiwar.com, but, oh, geez, I don't know. I'm afraid someone's going to call me an anti-Semite or something. And the role of the Israel lobby in American politics is hardly ever discussed at all. And yet now it's so out in the open and just with uh, the fight over Chuck Hagel, the fight over the, whether or not to uh, bomb Assad in the late summer of 2013 – and then the huge fight over the Iran deal, it seems like they've just way overplayed their hand time after time after time in such very public ways where, you know, you think, I, and, you know, I think the impression is left. Probably most people don't remember 2013 that well and the way it worked out. But the impression is still there from that time when the Israel lobby were the only people in America who wanted a war against Syria in 2013. And everyone else in America defeated them on the issue. And we didn't have it. I mean, the CIA kept doing their dirty work, but they didn't send in the Air Force like they were going to. Um, and so uh, it seems like this is really having an effect. And in your article here, again, it's at antiwar.com. Americans holding favorable views of Israel declined 16 percent. You really chalk a lot of this up to the uh, Netanyahu's direct intervention in right. uh, yeah. Obama's negotiations with Iran over their nuclear program. 
Right, because they were well reported for the most part. There was uh, good reporting on the fact that many of the groups that are associated with the Israel lobby, such as APAC, the Conference of Presidents, the American Jewish Committee, and others, uh, they all basically sided with Netanyahu's government. Uh, meanwhile, Pew was putting out polls saying most American adult uh, Jews were saying this is a great deal. <laughs> and so the question arose between Pew and the reporting and these intransigent leaders of these large Israel lobbying and Israel affinity networks, you know, who do you represent? And the answer was, well, Netanyahu. And so that story and that fallout and, and the fact that there's so many great groups out there that are challenging what has traditionally been very poor establishment media reporting saying these groups represent, you know, every single uh, American of the Jewish faith. People saw that for a lie. And finally, uh, I think it really hurt them as revealed in this massive decline. Yeah. Well, and... You know, again, as you talked about before, about people believing falsely that Iran had nuclear weapons just because of all the deluge of lies. Well, everyone on the left, all the, you know, very, very broadly speaking, every Democrat, basically, especially young people who like Obama and were taking Obama's side in the fight over the Iran deal, they come to be even slightly acquainted with the facts of the case. They come to understand that they weren't even making nukes at all. This is just to make sure that they don't start to try to. And, you know, that's a pretty big slap in the face to be lied to, you know, that big on such a big issue for so long. And I think that's part of this, too, is they kind of got inoculated against the lobby by actually being forced into a position of arguing for the Obama administration and the Democrats against the lobby in the way that they were. Whereas before, they, you know, the, the split wasn't so definitive. They weren't being made to choose, right? Right. I think so. And, you know, Obama helped out, helped this case by making that speech at a university saying basically, you know, an American, uh, the same group that's piling on this is the same group that, you know, basically dragged us into war with Iraq, blah, blah, blah. So that was okay. I mean, that was a productive conversation to have. But even again, if you go to Gallup.com and look, they're still pounding on, you know, this uh, Iran and nuclear weapons theme. It's a dead horse, but they're still beating it. And the, you know, if you keep seeing that sort of thing going on, the uh, implicit uh, argument is that Iran is trying to develop nuclear weapons, and that is a message that has not yet gone away. So, you know, the the drumbeat of, of propaganda is always, always out there, and it's only rarely when it comes to a head and, and we can finally walk away and say, oh, that's not really happening. So uh, the situation is still bad. That's all I have to say. Yeah. All right, now, uh, this isn't your poll, but, uh, well, it's polling, and it's yeah. on topic here this morning in Mondo Weiss. Right. Uh, Frank Luntz, the evil Frank Luntz, Republican pollster, uh, who has specialized in propaganda for Israel over the years and has done, you know, numerous uh, studies and focus groups about how to lie to and manipulate people into being pro-Israel, because that's the only way to do it. Um, but boy, in this case, the results, uh, are almost unbelievable. Uh, a survey of young Jewish American students. Only right. 42% believe that Israel wants peace. Right. Only 38% yeah. believe Israel is civilized and Western. 
38. Those are George W. Bush approval ratings here. Um, and, and just 31% believe Israel is a democracy, acquainted as they are with the fact that half the population lives under conditions of basically, uh, lawless slavery. Um, and then, uh, it says here no less than 21%. Again, we're talking about American Jewish students. No right. less than 21%, a fifth of them believe the U.S. should side with the Palestinians. Holy right. crap. And that's according to Luntz, who did not want to hear it and did not want to have to tell it to his clients. And did not release it publicly, I should add. You know, this is the person, the king of the dial test, the person who wrote the Israel uh, Project's guide on how to change the subject whenever these types of facts come up. And it, it really does show that the data, you know, once again, proving kind of my argument, if it's this bad... It's top secret. It's not released over, you know, at least mainstream channels. And Frank Luntz is certainly not going to release it. But I just think it, it goes to show that a lot of these programs, such as Birthright Israel, you have groups of students guaranteed uh, to go over and look, check out the situation and, and feel uh, more, you know, they're supposed to feel more sympathy with Israel. They come back and a lot of them write, you know, horrific tales about the checkpoints, people being stopped, Palestinians not being able to get medical care because of these constant intrusions on their life. And basically the entire investment in them from this multi, multi, multi hundred million dollar operation uh, is basically for naught. And so there are a lot of these programs that are backfiring. And I just I just think that this type of information about public opinion, especially when it's not a push poll when it is actually neutral language what do you think about this mm-hmm. uh it really reveals a lot yeah absolutely all right now um i'm keeping you a minute over time here uh so let me ask you uh one more uh, thing real quick i guess we don't have time to do the lawsuit i'm sorry but i'll have you back okay. tomorrow or whenever to, to talk the lawsuit but, yeah uh, tell them real quick about the event coming up because this thing's going to be huge and and more people are going to hear this on the podcast feed later than live anyway so go ahead no great well so on march 18 at the national press club there's an all-day conference uh called analyzing israel's influence it's called israel's influence good or bad for america because you're listening to this podcast uh, if you go and get a ticket to this all-day event with lunch and reception and enter Partner 2016, you'll get $20 off on your ticket, and you will hear some of the best speakers on this topic. Lawrence Wilkerson, Philip Weiss, Justin Raimondo, Tarek Roddy, Roger Madsen, Jim Loeb, Gideon Levy, Maria LaHood, Rula Jabril, Kirk Beatty, who's got a great new book on the lobby, Susan Abuhawa. You'll be able to talk to people. You'll be able to understand the situation better. Uh, as it pertains to this political campaign season and the future of America. So people need to come. Go to israelsinfluence.org and check out the speakers in the program. Awesome. And, uh, again, that's March the 18th, y'all. March the 18th. Thanks again, Grant. Great job. Thanks, Scott. See ya. All right, y'all. Uh, israelsinfluence.org and earmip.org. Right back with Daniel Larison in just a sec. Hey, y'all. Scott here. On average, how much do you think these interviews are worth to you? Of course, I've never charged for my archives in a dozen years of doing this, and I'm not about to start. But at patreon.com slash Show, you can name your own price to help support and make sure there's still new interviews to give away. So what do you think? Two bits? A buck and a half? There are usually about 80 interviews per month, I guess, so take that into account. You can also cap the amount you'd be willing to spend in case things get out of hand around here. That's patreon.com slash Show. 
And thanks, y'all. All right, you guys. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. This is my show, Scott Horton Show. Next up, it's our friend Daniel Larison from the American Conservative Magazine. And, uh, well, he's got a ton of great stuff there on uh, the election, on the foreign policies. Oh, the foreign policies. And um, and he proves that it's the Republicans, not necessarily the conservatives, who are uh, completely brain dead. Uh, welcome back to the show, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing fine, Scott. Thanks for having me back. Uh, very happy to have you here. So um, I believe the latest, unless you just uh, updated is uh, how the GOP failed to stop Trump in a nutshell. I think they believe in themselves, and they just could not see the threat. Is that the same thinking behind their championing of Marco Rubio as the most sellable establishment candidate to beat Hillary Clinton in the fall? I I think so. I I think a lot of Republicans are telling themselves a sort of fantasy story about how the election is supposed to go or how the nomination contest is supposed to go. And a lot of them would very much like things to work according to the rules as they've become accustomed to them in the past. And what they've been finding this year is that the the old rules where the party elites uh, essentially get their candidate in the poll position and and end up winning uh, no longer seem to work. Well, now, so the thing of it is, I think... um... Well, I don't know about you. I know I, I guess, agree just with the conventional wisdom that, well, come on, he's Trump. He's a complete freak, and eventually power always wins, and uh, they'll win, and he'll be gone. He'll have his, his moment, but then he'll be gone. But then I think, as you say in here, eh, this was pretty clear by the end of last summer, or by the fall at least, that, yeah, not so fast. This is not his Herman Cain moment. He owns this thing. And, of course, the presumed front runner, the biggest establishment case, Jeb, Trump completely just nuked him off the face of the earth, made him uh, basically irrelevant. Maybe he already was on his own anyway, but Trump just completely blew him away from the very beginning. But how come it took the people with the power so much longer than the rest of us to adjust to this reality that, hey, man, this guy Trump has a lot going for him in this election that they're going to be hard-pressed to get out ahead of? Well, I think for a long time they couldn't really believe that a candidate like this would continue to receive the same amount of support. And so they, they missed that his support is actually very enduring and stable and, and actually quite broad, spread out across uh, Republicans of many different kinds. And so they, they I think they sort of thought of him as a, a fringe or a protest candidate uh, who would fade over time as candidates like that have tended to do in the past. And, and so they, they missed out on that he was actually representing within their own coalition that they had been oblivious to or, or hostile to for decades. Uh, trade skepticism, obviously, uh, at least some skepticism about foreign intervention, although with Trump it's, it's still sort of all over the map there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and obviously uh, criticism of the way that immigration has been handled by people in Washington. And on, on those three issues in particular, uh, Trump is speaking for a huge block of Republicans that have gone underrepresented or unrepresented at the national level for a long time. And so I think party leaders were simply unaware that the threat was there. And so they, they weren't prepared for it when it sprang on them. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, and the, what's funny is, you know, they had the whole Tea Party movement and this and that, which is basically the rank and file saying, we hate you, Mitch McConnell types, and wish you weren't our leaders. And they, sh- they should have, would have seen all that coming, but then I guess they didn't figure there was anyone to really grab a hold of that. The, 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 the conservative movement, the Republican rank and file, they were just going to have to settle for Jeb, and that was going to be that. And and yet here comes the black swan coming in. He's not a governor. He's not a senator. But he's got a billion dollars, and he won't shut up. And and he just blew them all out of the water. And, you know, the thing is, it seems like even if they'd taken him very seriously from the very beginning, there's still really nothing they could do about it, right? It, well, it would have it would have been difficult because there's clearly a, a significant block of people that are very disaffected and, and disgusted with Republican leadership uh, that aren't going to be interested in what they're selling no matter what. And so I, I think they would have been hard-pressed to beat him even if they had somehow unified behind uh, one candidate rather than spreading out their support among several. Um, but I mean, so they certainly would have had a better chance of blocking him if they had recognized that he was a, a serious contender. Mm-hmm. And in fairness, I... For many months, I didn't realize that he was as credible a contender for the nomination as he has turned out to be. Uh, but, but certainly by the fall, and his number, with his numbers not going anywhere, you had to figure that he was going to stick around for a long time, and, and so he has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, I was adjusted that reality pretty quick, and then once I uh, read a little bit of uh, Scott Adams from the Dilbert blog there about the master persuader techniques and all that, that was when I finally adjusted to the reality that yeah, he really is going to wrap this thing up, and I don't expect Hillary to stand the slightest chance against him whatsoever when it comes to the general election, which, of course, raises the question, Daniel, of just what kind of president is Donald Trump going to be, do you think? Uh, well, I, I'm i not sure. I, I'm hopeful that a lot of the things that are being said about him, that he that he is interested in reducing U.S. involvement overseas, that he is interested in keeping us out of wars. I hope that that part of what people are saying about him is true, and that we can possibly look forward to a foreign policy that is less meddlesome, less active. On the other hand, I I don't know that that will actually come to pass, based on a lot of the people that Trump talks to, or seems to talk to. For instance, there's a report out that he's been consulting closely with Giuliani, of all people. Uh, That's very concerning that he would take seriously anything that Giuliani has to say. So there are reasons for worry as well as possibly some hope. Um, I think the the trouble with Trump is that his policies are so unformed or so undercooked that there's really no way of knowing which side he's going to land on on any of these debates. And so that that is something to be concerned about. Yeah. Even on something that he he seemed to really understand sounded like nothing but was in fact a big deal is Hillary's safe zone project in Syria and um I guess it was just one week ago where he told the press in that press conference that uh oh yeah, safe zone. Yeah, we can do a safe zone. And you know, I don't know if that's just politics, it's just statements. This, that, but it kind of rang to me like this is how his policies are going to be made. That thing where we go to war with the state in Damascus that we're not doing. Yeah, let's go ahead and do it with a shrug. And and the entire policy changes on its head. And now we're nose to nose with Putin over nothing or none of nothing. No real interest of ours anyway. 
Right. Uh, well, again, and that's that's the worry that he is sort of making it up on the fly and and will end up being pushed in to making the wrong decisions. Uh, that's that's certainly something to be very uh, worried about. Uh, I don't I don't know that he will have as much of a, a chance of winning the general election as as all that, but it certainly it seems. It seems like we shouldn't be underestimating him anymore. That's that's where people keep going wrong and, and assuming that he can't possibly achieve certain things when clearly he's been much more successful than anybody imagined he would be. Yeah. Well, yeah, again, uh, I hate to just completely beat a dead horse about that Scott Adams blog, but he just makes such a great point. It has nothing to do with policies or reason or anything. It's all just about persuasion and argument and analogy beats reason and identity beats analogy and trump is not running as the true conservative or like ted cruz or the the new feminist hero like hillary clinton he's running as the leader of all americans and this kind of thing and and he's willing to throw such barbs unprecedented on that level in a long long time at least where i just think hillary has so many weaknesses and he will be so ruthless in exploiting them the way he was against jeb i think I can predict a massacre. Maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, uh, hold tight right there. More with the great Daniel Larison right after this. Uh, he's from theamericanconservative.com. Hey, all Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Okay, guys, welcome back. It's me, Scott. Yeah. I'm hosting the show. Uh, I'm talking with Daniel Larrison from the American Conservative Magazine. Uh, he writes, uh, well, these days mostly about the campaign and, of course, uh, always the wars, the many wars. Um, and the politics of them. Uh, so now, uh, I kind of plead guilty to you all that um, I've been neglecting uh, Marco Rubio because, well, people call Donald Trump a clown. I don't know what that makes Rubio, but I just don't take him seriously. I never have. Um, you know, everyone laughed. I was I was uh, shocked, but not surprised when he had his big gaffe where he repeated the same line over and over again, whatever. I never thought uh, there was really much going on there besides memorized talking points. And I think even Republicans are capable of learning the lesson of George W. Bush, that if your president is that stupid and unsure of himself, then he's going to need a Cheney to tell him what to do. And that I may even be plagiarizing you there, Daniel, something you wrote, I forget. Um, but that's something we don't want any anymore as a, a president that dim. On the other hand, though, I shouldn't be neglecting him because he is running for president and he is, you know, one of the top three anyway. And as you write in this article here, uh, Daniel, at the American Conservative Magazine, uh, he is the establishment favorite. And that ain't nothing, although it amounted to nothing when it came to Jeb Bush. Uh, but uh, overall, it ain't nothing. So tell us about him. What do we need to know, you think? Uh, well, uh, he is certainly the candidate favored by a lot of party elites and donors. Uh, he's, he's rapidly becoming the, the favorite of, if he wasn't always the favorite of DC Republicans. And uh, a, a major reason for that 
uh, at least among D.C. Republicans, is, is foreign policy, uh, which is extremely hawkish, extremely interventionist, uh, reflexively so, in fact, uh, where he cannot, it seems, refrain from wanting to commit the U.S. to almost every crisis and conflict around the world. And uh, as we've seen in his opposition to the nuclear deal and normalization with Cuba, he also vehemently hates any kind of diplomatic engagement with uh, hostile or rival states, uh, even when that kind of engagement may be useful for U.S. Uh, advancing U.S. goals. So it's uh, if Romney was a candidate of omnidirectional belligerence, as someone once called him uh, back in the last election. Uh, Rubio is very much the same, in the same mold, but is much more of a true believer than Romney ever was, I think. Yeah, I mean, that that certainly seems uh, sure enough. Romney, you could say a whole lot of things about him, but at least he had lived in the world enough that he had some of his own opinions to think and stuff like that, his own experience to rely on. But Rubio seems to just basically be a vessel. Am I overstating that? And I guess, well, the truth of it, and I'm, uh, am I also overstating the appearance of that? Is that just me that sees him that way? Uh, well, that's certainly the way he appears to a lot of people, but uh, he, he's simply repeating things that he's been told or the things that he's he knows that he's supposed to say in order to get approval from uh, party and movement elites. Uh, but I, I think um, there is a level on which he has genuinely come to believe this stuff and is, is really committed to it in a in a way that's much stronger than, than any of the other candidates. Uh, with a lot of them, except maybe Lindsey Graham back when he was running, mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of them, they're... they're Paying lip service to a lot of these ideas, but with Rubio, he's—it seems to me—he's really quite passionately committed to them in, in a way that's very unnerving and, and frightening. Well, so now, I mean, he says things like he wants to rip up the deal with Iran on the first day. You think there'd be a real risk of war with Iran if Rubio was the president? Uh, it, it, the, the risk would certainly increase. Uh, I, I don't know that he would actually be willing to go through with that, but. He would be surrounded and, and is surrounded by people that have been advocating for something like that for a long time. Uh, I mean, one of his top advisors is Max Boot, uh, who has never seen a foreign war that the U.S. has fought that he didn't like. And he, there are quite a few more that he would like us to fight. Uh, and I think that's, that's representative of the kind of thinking in Rubio's camp and, and in Rubio's own mind. Yeah. Now, yeah, as far as um, the foreign policy teams, that's an important point. The whole John Hay Institute, and I forget the name of this um, consulting firm that was, I believe, um, coaching Rubio and Hillary both, according to The Intercept, right. if I remember that story right. Um, global uh, yeah. Strategies, something. Isn't it always just Elliot Abrams? Isn't he? <laughs> they just they name the think tank all different things, but it's just Elliot Abrams all the time. Uh, he's one of them, yeah. Yeah. Um, but now, so uh, you mentioned Giuliani there when it comes to Donald Trump. I saw him refuse to answer about his foreign policy because he said he was about to uh, announce his team in about a week, which I think that week's almost up here. Um, and, you know, I'd heard him mention before he likes John Bolton. I don't know how well they know each other. Um, and then I'm sorry, I. I just had on the tip of my tongue, but uh, you had mentioned, oh, Giuliani. He was running around with Giuliani, which, you know, is probably even worse than John Bolton, if that's possible. Um, 
but then again, he seems to be like, yeah, I don't care about your neocon poly, uh, you know, uh, you know, line that I'm supposed to tow on Syria, Russia, or anything else. I'll do what I kind of feel like. So I wonder um, if you think maybe there would be some surprises in there, and he'll, I don't know, find at least some Colin Powell Republicans instead of just all Richard Pearls, or what do you think? It well, it, it's possible that there could be some surprises. I, I think in keeping with the way that Trump is sort of all over the map on foreign policy. I imagine if he does actually produce a list of advisors, the list would in, would be kind of eclectic and would include people from lots of different backgrounds. Um, I, I don't know how many people who would end up on that list would be people that we would recognize, because I think a lot of Republican foreign policy professionals view Trump with extreme distaste, and, and so they wouldn't want to be part of his campaign. So, uh, you know... To a large extent, uh, if he can put together a list of advisors, it's going to be mostly people that are not coming out of those professional circles. So he's going to be drawing on maybe former military officers, uh, people from the business community. I, I'm not sure who he would draw on, but it, uh, it would not be the, the usual cast of suspects. Yeah. Well, I guess I can maybe see Bolton telling the rest of the neocons, like, I got this, you know, I'll go talk to him, kind of thing. Because after all, he's not a former Trotskyite, right? He's just a Goldwater conservative from way back. So, and he's very sure of himself, John Bolton, right? He could, I think he'd be willing. But uh, I'm not promoting the idea. I'm terrified by it. But but I just, right. like you're saying, I don't know who else he's going to go to. I'd like to see him ask Andrew Basevich, but I don't think Andrew Basevich is going to give him the time of day either, right? So uh, I, I would be very surprised if he did. Yeah, I'm sure he wouldn't bother, but uh, yeah, uh, on, either way, uh, on either side there. So yeah, that'll be interesting to see, because he did say he's announcing his team. So yeah, I guess it'll probably be former military guys who are... Uh, not not so much tied directly to the think tanks. And by the way, do you make uh, much of uh, Trump's, I guess, repeated denunciations of the military-industrial complex and the economics of, um, you know, Pentagon purchasing and all that? I, I there's something to it in that I, I think he's fitting that into his larger complaints about cronyism or, or corrupt interests working in and through the political system. Uh, I, I don't know how much, how committed he would be to, to rooting out any of that. Uh, but he, I mean, he's certainly shining a light on it more than any of the others. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing to hear him talk like that at all. Uh, but yeah, again, uh, trying to forge a, a higher on the ladder, I guess, identity than just conservative Republican, but somebody for everybody along those lines. Which, by the way, speaking of which, the exact opposite of that is Ted Cruz saying, I am the candidate of the most hardcore Reaganites who are left and screw everybody else. And so I've also kind of written him off and not paid enough attention to really what he's about. Um, you think, politically speaking, first of all, that he's much of a danger to actually get the nomination? I, well, I don't because he he, he has the, the knack for alienating even people that should be on his side. It's just in the way that he deals with other people, the way that he... Uh, tends to denounce people if they deviate even a little bit from his script. So I, I tend to think he, his support is pretty limited, and and that's been borne out in the results we've seen so far, where he gets a very decent chunk of very conservative voters, but he doesn't get anybody outside of that group. 
And so that's going to hamper him, especially as we get later on into the into April and May, as we get into the Northeast and the Midwest um, mm. with their primaries. And I guess he basically takes the Rand Paul line on Syria, right? Bomb the East, but not the West? Uh, pretty much, yes. Although, I mean, obviously, he, he will amp that up and talk about uh, carpet bombing or, or whatever he thinks he means by that, uh, by pushing for much more aggressive measures in the way that the war on ISIS is fought. But yes, he has been pretty clear about not going to war with the Syrian government and not trying to fight both sides of the civil war at the same time. Yeah, uh, well, and it's funny the way people talk about the uh, the sand glowing as though that's just a reference to the carpet bombs, but I thought that was a pretty clear reference to gamma radiation, no? Uh, well, it, that, that's certainly what he meant to conjure up in people's minds. He wanted people to think that he was talking about using dukes, uh, which, even as a rhetorical flourish, is nuts. Uh, but I, you, know, you, have, you have to assume that he's not really serious about doing something like that. Right. Yeah, just trying to prove that, hey, he's willing to, <laughs> which I guess is to his credit to some people, but then there's the rest of us. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, man, I really appreciate you coming back on the show, Daniel. Great stuff as always. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right, y'all, that is great Daniel Larrison. He's at theamericanconservative.com slash Larrison. A great blog there. Lots of coverage of the wars and the politicians as well. And that's it. We're over time. See you all tomorrow.